So we can start with kind of like the evolutionary psychology perspective, which is like, if we didn't have a reproductive impulse drive, our species would not be here. Point blank, it has to be there. There has to be something innate in us telling us, have babies, take care of them, okay? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Ta-da, we are, therefore it exists. As a Christian, I would give an account of that drive that I would say it is not, in fact, simply brute psychological selection. I would argue that it is, in fact, a fundamentally creative impulse that exists in us because it is, in some sense, the indelible imprint of a law given to us before corruption. Go forth and multiply. This is not an aberration to uh, our nature. This is fundamental to it. We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark woods, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason, then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? My guest today is Lyman Stone. Lyman wears many hats. He's the Chief Information Officer at Demographic Intelligence, which is a collection of the world's leading demographers who develop forecasting models related to changing demographic, economic, and cultural conditions around the world. He's also Adjunct Fellow at AEI, a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and a former international economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where he forecasted cotton market conditions. His writing has appeared widely in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, South China Morning Post, and elsewhere. Today, Lyman and I will primarily be discussing issues related to fertility. So Lyman, welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm glad to get a chance to talk with you. I often ask interviewees to give a quick background, uh, sort of quickly on how you got to where you are right now, particularly as sort of a leading commentator on fertility rates. How did you get here? Uh, entirely by accident. I did my, my undergraduate and my master's work in uh, international trade and trade policy, and then I worked in tax policy for a little while. When I was doing that, I was unwillingly assigned to write about taxes and migration, like how do tax rates influence migration or not? Do they do? Do they not? And uh, and found that actually I enjoyed it. So um, I took some classes in migration studies, migration theory, and all that. And then I went and got a job in trade policy. But on the side, I started you know blogging about this stuff, writing about it, and then from migration got to sort of like place and economic development, and then from there got to you know why do places decline? What can be done about that? And then from there got into really demography, and with demography came um, babies, fertility. This is. <laughs> You talk to anybody who's like not a demographer, but demography, but demography adjacent, and it's just like, oh yeah, demographers. They they just think about like why people like babies. That's all they do is babies. But also we do like death and migration. So you know, death and babies. Yeah. So I got into demography and started writing about it really kind of autodidactically, just on a blog. But over time, I started getting requests to write on really specific topics, like. Topics that were unusually niche for like a random internet commenter. And then I started to realize what was happening is that like corporate research departments were leaving comments to say, could you research this? (laughs) 
So now I now I do it uh, for profit for the, those folks. And I'm also getting my PhD in uh, sociology uh, at McGill University in Montreal, where I'm recording this from. Great. And that's where it brought you to Montreal. I really appreciate that bit of history. It's really interesting that in many ways I've sort of randomly landed in my field as well. So it's good to hear that other people aren't so focused in the way they get to where they are. And sometimes we just end up there. Can you describe for the listeners general trends of fertility rates in the US over the last 100 years at a very, very high level so we get some sense of where we are now and how does that relate to, for example, 1950s was a big period. Uh, we know that was a height, but then we've had some different uh, fertility periods in the United States. So the first thing to understand is there's fertility and then there's fertility. What I mean is there's how many babies people have and then there's how many babies people have that live. And these are very different stories, right? So if you go back to like the 1600s in the, the British colonies of North America, people are having seven kids per woman. That, that's, that's what's happening. But four of those kids are going to die before age 15. As far back as we can really see, it seems like the U.S. has averaged sort of in our pre-revolutionary period, something like three to four children per woman who survived to her reproductive years. That was, appears to be the typical, and that's the number of children that would survive themselves to like age 15 or so. So sometimes people are like, oh, people used to have 57 kids, and now they only have two. And that, that's not true. Family size, his, deep in the wells of history, family size still only averaged around maybe three or four kids per, particularly per married woman. So, uh, but a lot of those children, because that's how many actually like made it to uh, a higher age. So then um, in the mid 18th century, things begin to change. We begin to get, get what's called the fertility transition. Uh, it hits America before anywhere else in the world. It hits France second. Um, it, but as far as we can tell, the first fertility transition to modernity is in the middle and later part of the 18th century in Massachusetts, where you get new ideas about family, about whether it's okay to not try to have as many kids, about uh, how you might go about avoiding uh, having kids. So like the first like birth control manual is published in, it's called The Fruits of Philosophy, and it's published in, I think, 1832 in Massachusetts. And it's a collection of remedies that were already in use. Massachusetts also has some of the first anti-abortion laws because it becomes an issue late in the 18th century with uh, white lead in particular. You get this transition. And so it begins in Massachusetts in the mid-18th century and it spreads. And so the entire 19th century is a story of gradual declining fertility. Now, in the beginning part, it's declining fertility in terms of number of babies, but actually the number of surviving kids is about flat. That is, they're having fewer children, but the ones that are born live, are living at higher rates. So, so you actually get kind of stable family size but probably fewer traumatic losses of children. But then over the end of the 19th century, birth rates begin to fall. And by World War I, they are down at about two surviving children per family. So they, they drop pretty dramatically in the latter 19th century, in the early 20th century. Uh, they drop below two during the Great Depression, real bad times. And then towards the end of the Great Depression, so about 1937 or 1938, they begin, birth rates begin to rise again. People think that the baby boom was GIs coming back from the war. That did contribute. Nine months after the GIs are home, we do see like, and it is like precisely nine months after the troop ships are landing. But actually birth rates were already rising in like 1937, 38, 39. 
So there was already this sort of pent-up demand. We know that around that time, there was a Gallup survey in 1936 that asked people their family size preferences. And I think the the average was like 3.5. People wanted 3.5 kids, which is, again, in some sense, you could say it's almost the biological norm of a pre-modern human society. Like for the society to remain stable, given mortality rates and reproductive rates and all that, you need about three or four children to survive to age 15. For You need probably like... 2.8 2.8 to 3 for it to be stable given adult mortality. What do you mean by stable in this context? Oh, stable population. So we think of the replacement rate as like 2.1, that people need to have 2.1 kids in order for population to be stable. That's actually not true. That's only true if at current mortality rates. But if you have much higher mortality rates, you actually need to have far more babies. So you're saying in 1930, 1937, would have been considered replacement rate would have been higher than 2.1, closer to three. No. So in, in the 1700s, it would have been, you needed around three or four, but those norms of a three or four child family persist much longer than the death rates that made it necessary. Right? So you see this three or four child norm up until basically the fifties in surveys. And then the baby boom peaks in like the late fifties, early sixties, it crashes hard in like the late sixties and into the seventies. Uh, And that's the result of several things. One is family size preferences collapse. They they drop really rapidly from like three or four to like two or three. So they drop by about one child on average per woman. And then concurrent with that, we get technological advances in birth control, right? So you get the pill. After World War II, especially, you got much more widespread access to condoms. And then, of course, uh, eventually in the 70s, starting in 1970 and then nationally in 73, you get legalized abortion, which uh, reduces birth rates as well. And so then since then, people thought, oh, gosh, birth rates are going to keep going down. We were below, we were like 1.7 or so around the time of Roe v. Wade. But that's not what happened. Birth rates recovered. They bounced back up. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one big reason is immigration. We opened up immigration. We got more immigrants from high-fertility countries. They came here. They had fewer children than their than the people in the countries they came from often, but they still have more children than Americans who than native uh, natives in the U.S. were having. And so then we were above two for a long time. And people always said, oh, America is a uniquely high-fertility country. And there were all these explanations like, oh, it's because Americans are very religious or something like this. And these might have been somewhat true, but the main story was just immigrants. We just had a lot of immigrants from poor countries. And over the last 20 years, as immigration has slowed down and as those immigrants have assimilated and as more countries, more immigrants sending countries themselves have low fertility, we now have very low fertility. We have the lowest fertility in our history of about 1.6 children per woman is what, that's what we project will happen at current birth rates. So that's where we are now. That was probably longer than you anticipated. No, that's no. This is super helpful. I noticed you got yourself a little bit embroiled in a controversy in the literature regarding how much we should pay attention to total fertility rates. Basically, this reduction in fertility rates we're seeing is sort of an artifact of women having later children. But eventually, these women will sort of catch up. They'll have kids in their mid forties, and all will be fine. How important is this tempo effect? That's a great question. So this is a huge issue in demography. When we look at birth rates, we're looking at how many babies were born to mothers of a certain age, and then how many women are there in that age group? And that's the age-specific fertility rate, okay? So this is like the basic building block of the, the total fertility rate, which is this indicator of children born per woman. But you can imagine if the norm, the social norm of when you begin having kids changes. So let's say everybody wants to have two kids, 
But in generation one, they want to have two kids and they want to have their first kid around age 15. And then they want to have their second kid at age 20 and then they're done. But in generation two, they want to have their first kid at age 30 and their second kid at age 35. This is a 15-year difference. During the transition from generation one to generation two, those young birth rates will collapse. They'll fall to nearly zero and it'll make you look, it'll make, and then you still have that generation one that's at the older age groups. They're not having more kids because of course they're not. They already had the two that they wanted. So it'll make fertility rates look really, really, really low. You'll say, oh gosh, women who are being born today are only going to have, you know, 0.2 kids because there's, you know, if we look at current older birth rates, they're not having very many and they're not having many now. So they're not going to have many kids. But what's really going on is they're going to have the same number of kids, but they're going to have them later in life. Okay. So this is what we call the tempo effect that you mentioned. So this comes up in popular narratives when somebody says, oh, people are still going to have the same number of kids. They're just delaying. There's just delay. Um, and we have all kinds of mathematical tools for measuring tempo. I actually have a, a paper that's uh, it's going to be submitted for publication this fall, but it's, it's expanding on a prior paper that showed a very similar thing that shows that for all the demographers love to talk about this tempo effect, it turns out mathematically accounting for the tempo effect does not actually improve forecast accuracy. That demographers go to all this work to say, oh, here's tempo, here's quantum, here's all these things. And it turns out, if you look at women when they're 15 and you try and project their fertility based on crude fertility rates versus like tempo adjusted fertility rates, the tempo adjusted fertility rates don't do any better. It's just it like this whole, oh, it's delay. It's not this wrong. I mean, yes, there is delay. There is. It is real. But births delayed are usually not fully made up. Now, I should say at age 15, none of our indicators are like super highly predictive. There's just a lot going on over there. But uh, that it is true that there is this tempo effect. But as people delay, they don't tend to fully make up for those lost, so to speak, babies. And so for that reason, while it is important in an academic sense to think about the tempo effect, my argument is that socially, when we think about the, the world we inhabit and the world we want to live in, we, we don't need to make it sort of a big thing because the not accounting for the tempo effect is still going to give us a decent forecast. And moreover, having kids later in life is still important in the sense that you're going to have fewer healthy years with that kid or with grandkids or things like that. Well, to my next set of questions about why you think plumbing fertility rates are problematic. So you think about someone like Matthew Iglesias, and his book, One Million American or One Billion Americans, excuse me, basically raised concerns about economic impact of low fertility rates. And also he points to impacts on policy related issues such as social services for the elderly. We don't have enough children or young adults to support aging elderly. Some are militaristic. We need more kids to have an army. That one's a little tough to swallow. And Ross Douthit uh, is very concerned issues of dynamism. So the fewer people we have in America, the less likely we are to invent amazing things and to be a dynamic culture. Your concerns seem to be a little bit different and much more about personal desires and the relationship between desired fertility and actual fertility. So more directly, why do you think these fertility rates are, are so problematic in a way that's independent of these economic, militaristic, uh, cultural dynamism issues? Yeah. So there's kind of three kinds of pronatalism, right? We're going to introduce a word here, pronatalism. Those of us who want more babies, there's kind of three kinds that we could point to. One is, I think, the one we can sort of toss out right at the beginning, which is essentially ethno-nationalist pronatalism, right? We need babies because it is fundamentally good 
for our genetic stock to be more numerous in the competition of species. So like that's one kind of pronatalism. Uh, you definitely see this as a policy motivation in some places, like, for example, Germany, 1933 to 1945. We also see it today in China. This, this is basically the policy of the People's Republic of China at this point. It has not always been, but it is now. This is a real thing. It's out there. As a Christian, I find it abominable and horrible. Okay, so that's one kind of pronatalism. Um, a second kind is uh, what we would call this sort of collective liberal pronatalism. And that's what you are going through, all these arguments that if we don't have babies, there will be all these social consequences that are bad for all of us. Lower dynamism, lower economic growth, uh, strategic insecurity in a future war, um, these kinds of things. Basically, the story these, these ones tell is if we don't have these babies, the future will be not good or less good. And so the, the argument that, that this pronatalism is making is that children or parents need to have children for the instrumental purpose of creating a better future. And if you don't, you're going to be beaten with the stick of the future being more miserable. You should be so scared of the future that you have more children. That's the argument in a nutshell. I think it's a bad argument. Yeah, it gets a little problematic when, particularly for the economic argument, that the children become simply inputs into economic growth, right? They become an input in the same way that we need more oil or trees. Right. So there's there's like a philosophical problem here on like how we think about people. Like what if it turned out in the future that like having less people was good for economic growth? Are we thinking to like turn around and have a cull? No. Well, maybe not in this country. In some countries, maybe. So I understand this argument. And, and it is it is important from like a public policy perspective. These arguments have the benefit of being fairly neutral. They appeal to pretty widely shared values. They are preference independent also. Like it doesn't matter if you if you want kids or not for these arguments, you suffer the consequences. But the argument I make, which is sort of an individualist liberal argument, is that we should want higher birth rates because people want higher birth rates. That is, we have surveys. We have literally in the United States hundreds of surveys that have been conducted for almost a century. I mentioned a Gallup one in 1936. Just before I got on this call, I was processing the data for a survey I fielded last month going through asking all kinds of questions about fertility preferences and family formation and all that, where we just ask people, how many kids do you want to have? What would be the ideal number of kids for you to have? If you could do your life over, how many kids would you have wanted to have? On a scale of one to 10, how happy would you be if you ended up with this number of kids or this number or this number? You know, we ask these questions a million different ways. It's, and people always think, well, you only got the response that people want 2.5 kids because you asked this question that isn't really a real questions about what they really want. Here's the truth. It doesn't matter how you word the question. American women or men, but we mostly survey women because, first of all, men lie about their fertility history a lot. They don't know their fertility history in some cases. And also, uh, they are not the ones carrying babies. So it's kind of like, cool, it's great that you want nine kids. Good for you. So we, we mostly survey women because they tend to have more credible preferences for a variety of reasons. You ask American women how many kids they want, phrase it any way that you want, anything, as long as you're querying a preference, they will tell you a number between 2.2 and 2.8 on average. Now, some people will say zero. Some people will say five. A lot of people will say two. But on average, you can get 2.2 to 2.8 around there. So what that tells you, and I should also say, if you ask women this question when they are, say, 16, and then you follow up with them when they're 40, 
and you say, okay, how many kids did you have? You're not going to get the same number because life happens and values change and all that. But there is no single variable that you could have had when they were age 16 that is more predictive than their fertility preference. You could look at their number of siblings. You could look at their religiosity. You could look at their parents' marital status, their socioeconomic standing, whatever. Their fertility preference is the most powerful predictor. And this has been demonstrated in numerous longitudinal data sets in numerous contexts. So these preferences are weighty. They are thick preferences. They are resilient to rephrasing the question, to priming people different ways. They do not just vanish in a puff of rhetorical air. And they are also empirically highly predictive of actual behavior. If I know your stated intention to become pregnant, I am like, you're much more likely to become pregnant. If you tell me in a survey, I am trying to become pregnant or I want more kids, this is actually predictive of what's actually going to happen in your life. Not perfectly. It's statistics. There's a lot of noise. It's pretty good. And with a few more controls in there, it gets very good. So I would say these preferences are real. People care about them. They want more kids. And there's some evidence that when people have reproductive outcomes they don't want, so like they have fewer kids than they want, or especially if they have more kids than they want, that there are happiness costs, uh, that people who have undesired reproductive outcomes uh, end up less happy in life. So, okay. So this is why I think the reason we should have more babies is people want them. There's nothing wrong with babies. Like it's not like if people said, I want, you know, um, to sacrifice 10,000 goats on, on my neighbor's doorstep. Like that's no, you can't. Like, it's fine. More babies is fine. It's a reasonable desire. It's not like everybody saying, I want my own personal yacht. Like saying, I'd like to have two or three kids. That's reasonable. In a decent society, this is something that should be attainable. And finally, it is a credible preference. And we know that uh, policy measures that make it easier to have children, like financial supports and stuff, do in fact yield higher birth rates, which is all my argument for why have more babies. Because people want them. So as I was reading your papers, the one thing I thought about was, well, can't you can solve this problem in two ways. Is you either increase the number of children that people have or you reduce their expectations and you convince them that they want fewer children than they actually want. And we're seeing this, right? You know, I deal with college students every single day, both undergraduate and graduates, and I'm often taken aback by how few of my female students want children. So haven't we solved this problem by convincing people or people convince themselves they want fewer children? So I'd say a couple things. First of all, we have seen, we also survey fertility intentions and fertility expectations. These are not preferences. How many kids you intend to have is not how many you want to have, right? You might intend children you don't want because your spouse really wants them and you're conceding to their desires. Or you might want children that you do not intend because, gosh, you'd love to have it, but have you seen the price of childcare, right? So we actually have seen a pretty sharp decline in fertility intentions or expectations over the last few years, over the last decade or so. We have not seen a corresponding decline in fertility desires. So what I'm saying is that whole like expectation setting thing is happening. It's not convincing women to reset their desires, so they're saying, yeah, I know this might not be realistic, but this is what I want. So I get it when people are like, oh, yeah, maybe we could change these, these desires or whatever. These desires are pretty robust. In Taiwan where they only, or Korea, where women only average about one child each, 
surveyed preferences are still around two. In Taiwan, they're just below two. In Korea, they're a little buff. There's only a few places where surveyed preferences are below two. Um, Malta is one, which is weird. And then mainland China is one. And that's partly because up until recently, saying you wanted three kids would have been a crime. I mean, there are not many places where this is, these preferences fall. And you could say, yeah, okay, we'll convince people they don't want them. But like from a kind of a liberal perspective, why? Like, why would you want to do that? First of all, it's not clear you can do that. Like, governments have tried to do this, like, and yet the fertility preferences are still there. China had a legal one-child policy, and yet the average preference was still like 1.7. So unless you're proposing something more draconian than China's one-child policy, you will not succeed in getting these preferences that far down. So it seems, is it possible to make an argument that there's actually something natural to the human person that desires this sort of these sort of procreative habits? I know that this... In this particular moment, we think about sex and gender. This is such a problematic argument to make. But it seems to me that you are making that argument. There's something natural to a woman who wants 2.5 children. So here I would actually emphatically not say a woman. I would say a person. Because I do think there are, from two perspectives. So we can start with kind of like the evolutionary psychology perspective, which is like if we didn't have a reproductive impulse drive, our species would not be here. Point blank, it has to be there. There has to be something innate in us telling us, have babies, take care of them, okay? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Ta-da, we are, therefore it exists. As a Christian, I would give an account of that drive that I would say it is not, in fact, simply brute psychological selection. I would argue that it is, in fact, a fundamentally creative impulse that exists in us because it is, in some sense, the indelible imprint of a law given to us before corruption. Go forth and multiply. This is not an aberration to uh, our nature. This is fundamental to it. Now, you can make prudential arguments about the extent of multiplication. What exactly is meant by that? I'm, I'm not arguing for like a quiverful situation here. Uh, in fact, there's some very interesting readings on, on the curse in Genesis about that. But um, but suffice to say, um, throughout Scripture as a Christian, it's rather clear that the procreative impulse is not only a fleshly thing that's part of our body, but it is in fact something of the Spirit, something given to us by God, something that is a part of the story of our and humanity's redemption. It's language of marriage and uh, children and and child rearing that frames so much of the relationship between God and the church. And, and I'm, I'm getting off track here, but so I would say both from a sort of Evo psych side of things and from a uh, religious perspective, it seems clear to me that while it is not immutable, anything can be changed. Some degree of desire for reproduction is fundamental to humanity. Right. And John Paul II tied it so closely to even our understanding of God and God being procreative, right? The love of the Father and the Son pouring forth as the Spirit. And it's so close, and having children so closely tied to our deepest theological virtues of charity, right? The pouring forth of the love between the husband and the wife is the child. So, charity, uh, having children is an inherently an act of charity. At the same time, it's an act of hope that you believe that there's something in the future that's worth giving to someone other than yourself. So what do you think are the three, we'll just say three, uh, there's dozens of 
leading causes here, this discrepancy bet- between desired fertility and total fertility. What do you think are the three big things? I know there's some obviously cultural, political, economic. What do you think the three big ones are? So when we see this desired fertility, the first thing driving the shortfall is timing factors. Uh, it's that women got started later than they planned. Um, and we do, in fact, know that women on average start having kids later than they planned. There's also survey questions where we ask, what would be the ideal time to have a baby? Yada, yada. When would you like to start having kids? And they tend to start later than they planned. And that is often because it took longer to find a suitable spouse, settle down, and be stable. Is that because ideas of stability and suitable spouse changed? Or because the actual quantity of suitable spouses changed and the actual availability of economic stability changed? The answer is some of both. So, but timing is a big part of this. So more years in school and of course school, any, as long as you're in school, you're a child. And I know that sounds strange, but I'm a child right now, even though I have children, because the position of a child in society is the learner, right? As long as you are the learner rather than the teacher, as long as you are the one receiving the knowledge of society, you're a child. That's, that's what childhood is. It's the learning time. So you can call your age at adulthood whatever you want, but the stage of childhood is the stage of learning. And people don't usually want to feel like a child when they have kids. Now, I left school for a while and had a kid, and now I'm back in, but whatever. Um, I'm weird. So we have like this, this strong social thing about extended years of education, and then it takes longer to get a good job, and then with both uh, partners working in more and more cases, uh, sorry, I should say not working, but employed in more and more cases, you get the two body problem, right? Where are you going to find jobs for both of you and all these things? And as marriage happens later, you've got more people a little kind of happy with their life, set in their way and not willing to change things. You're not going to move an hour away to be close to that person like you might have when you were 23. So that's one thing is timing. The second is just cost. Even if you began at the time you intended, you have that first one and then you go, wow, things are expensive. Maybe I'm going to have three, not four. Childcare is expensive. Have you seen college costs? Look, wow. You suddenly start to go, okay, this is expensive. We're going to, we're going to think about this a little more. So even if the timing all works out, there's the cost issue, basically just a budget constraint. You can think of it that way. And again, there's a real component to that, that Prices of things kids consume really have risen. And then there's also a norms component of that, right? Like you could just not put your kid in any lessons, but like that's not the social norm anymore. You know, you need toddler music classes. My kid goes to toddler music classes. She loves it. She dances around. I, my wife sends me these adorable videos of it. It's wonderful, but like, that does add to the cost and it isn't strictly necessary, right? The, the budget component also is kind of like hard budget issues and also norms. Um, and then the third thing is opportunity costs. Let's say that desire for children is stable over time and there's been no decline. People want exactly the number of kids exactly as intensely as they always wanted them. But let's say in the meantime, and let's say that all of their preferences have been stable over time, that they've had no, that there's been no change in what humans want over time. But airplane tickets to Italy have fallen in price, which means even if you have all the same preferences on the margin, you're going to take more Italy vacations and maybe not spend the money on saving for a kid. If all your preferences have been the same, but a technology has been invented that enables you, or I should say that subjects you 
to images of other people's lives all the time, and particularly to a curated version of it, and particularly to compelling visual images of their consumption habits, if such a technology were invented. I hope a technology like that is not invented. I know. I hope it's never invented. But it could have the effect of, even if you have all the same preferences, of making you feel worse about missing out on certain things. Now, one could combat this by flooding such a technology with pictures of cute children. I suggest this as a, as a resistance strategy. If ever such a technology is invented, we should resist its keeping up with the Joneses' effects by, uh, by baby spamming it so that people understand that they're missing out on uh, babies. But you have to curate it perfectly and get the right baby pictures, the especially cute ones when they're not screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you have one, like, unposed, like, what it was really like, so that people know you're genuine. So, but this, this is another thing, is there's opportunity costs that, um, especially there's both, like, sort of these hedonic opportunity costs about what's happening in other people's lives. There's opportunity costs around price changes of consumption goods. And then there's also an opportunity cost around income. That is, as more uh, families are to earner incomes or as more women are working in formal employment, the opportunity cost, the lost income of having children grows. So these these are all what I would call opportunity cost effects. So you basically have timing, budget constraints, and opportunity costs. Do you think your brand of pronatalism is feminist or anti-feminist? It's going to depend on how you define those words, right? So there's some people who are like, feminist just means equality, in which case, sweet. Okay, great. My brand of pronatalism is feminist. Because I'm just arguing, listen to people's preferences and try to fulfill them in a neutral and equal way. For other people, feminist means maximizing women's power in dyadic relationships. And power is construed as ability to marshal resources which are valuable outside of the relationship, right? So essentially leverage. In that sense, my perspective is not particularly feminist because it is a universal truth that having children is going to limit women's power in that sense because they are going to lose some earning potential, at least for the period of like the recovery postpartum. And, uh, and it tends to have effects much longer than that, even in highly gender egalitarian couples. In some sense, arguing people want more babies is always going to be anti-feminist under some definition of feminism, but I would argue that that definition of feminism is simply willfully ignoring what women repeatedly say that they want in survey after survey after survey. That if what you mean by feminism is trying to recognize women's equal personhood, equal stake in society, and review and view their desires and preferences as, as on par with men, uh, then I would argue that pronatal, pronatalism is almost a necessity. Um, now, I would also note that a lot of the policies that achieve pronatalism, things like parental leave from work with pay, some of these are things that feminists really like. Others, things like a child allowance, are kind of neither here nor there. But on net, a lot of feminists don't love them because they recognize that giving cash to families for kids is going to lead to some women saying, eh, maybe I don't need to work and I'll just stay home. And that's viewed as bad. I would say that's their free choice. You just gave them cash and they chose to stay home. That's not bad. It, I mean, I'm not going to say it's like necessarily good, but it, it's it's not bad. It's just their choice. But there are some strands of feminism that will see that choice as ipso facto a manifestation of unequal power relationships. 
So it seems to me that there are, in the political realm, there are some countries that are really seeing this uh, fall in fertility rates as an existential threat to survival, like a real existential threat to survival. We think Poland and Hungary. Now, there, there is some question about whether or not those are uh, nationalistic, like you mentioned, or if they're liberal. Yeah, I comment on that. But it seems as though, if I'm to be honest, you, know, you have Matthew Iglesias, you have Ross Douthat, you have you, you have some other folks. I don't seem to, seem to see the same level of concern in the United States about fertility rates as I do in Europe and in Asia. Is that because our fertility rates simply haven't cratered yet? Or what's explaining this? So it's a couple of things. Fear about fertility does not come from low fertility rates. Fear about fertility comes from shrinking population or from at least a relative shrinking of population, but generally from shrinking population. When a community begins to shrink, they begin to worry about fertility rates. And I should say this is true even if fertility rates are not the problem. In fact, I'm working on a, on a piece right now where I specifically look at the Ciro Malabar Church in um, Kerala, India, and I show that they've, they've got this huge fertility rate freakout going on right now, and they're like doing all this stuff to try and counter it. But their birth rates are higher than the non-Christians in their same regions. The reason they have declining population share in their regions where they are is because their kids are very well educated and they emigrate away from India. But they're not doing anything. It's not like they're going to stop educating their kids or like provide incentives to stay. Even though fertility is not the problem, once population or relative population begins to decline, people worry about fertility, even if fertility is not the problem. Okay. So then that clarifies what's happening in Poland and Hungary. Yes, they have very low fertility and low fertility is a big part of the problem there. But also after they opened up to the EU, they had a huge migration away. And this is why we've also seen, in some senses, even bigger turns toward pronatalism in Czechia, in Slovakia, in Estonia, in Latvia, in Lithuania. These countries are arguably doing even more than Poland and Hungary are. They just do it a little more low-key and without as many fireworks. And they're, they're, they're smaller, so they don't attract as much attention. But so when population begins to decline, it creates worries. Other examples of this? Korea, Japan, Taiwan, China. All these places, when population begins to stabilize or decline, people freak out. In the U.S., population is not declining. Why? Because our fertility rates were high for a long time because of immigrants. And also, we get a lot of immigration. So we can kind of coast along. We can kick the can down the road for a while. So we don't have the motivation. Now, you do see some pronatalists. You see some offering kind of a liberal pronatalism on the left. You see some folks like uh, Marco Rubio or Josh Hawley who have made various kinds of pronatal arguments on the right. You do see the other. And then the other problem in the U.S. is that there are a lot of people on the right uh, who do believe in a version of pronatalism, but it's that first version. It's the race pronatalism. And in U.S. policy, you can't do that. It's like you can't be like it's a child allowance for white people. Right. So in practice, race pronatalism ends up mobilizing political resources against pronatal policy because they're worried that it will disproportionately encourage what they call dysgenic fertility. The level of like brainworm going on with these people. Right. Um, but this is going to cause more fertility among the bad sorts of people. It's a kinder, gentler eugenics. I wouldn't call it a kind of I would just call it eugenics. Okay, fair enough. And like the, the place doing this most right now is China, right? Where they're actively suppressing fertility of ethnic minorities now. 
And then they're encouraging it among the Han Chinese. And in particular, they've started also talking about improving, improving investments in the quality of pregnancy and birth. And what they mean is improving R&D in like genetic selection and stuff like that. There's all this. Now, on the question of what's happening in Poland and Hungary, you know, there's always, things are always complicated. What happened in Hungary is that in about 2015, they woke up to the problem in a serious way, but also they wanted to cut their welfare state because they felt like it was holding back employment and economic growth. So they did cut their welfare state. And then they implemented new programs with that money that didn't actually increase the amount of money being spent on children. They actually didn't increase spending on like pronatal policy. They just changed how it was being spent. And they gave it a very flashy rebranding. And that flashy rebranding was part of Orban 2.0's whole rebranding as, you know, super like ethno-conservative, you know, true Hungarian identity, whatever. And as part of that, the pronatal policies have, have gotten big billing as an alternative to immigration as a source of growth. And so they have been characterized as basically being this kind of race, ethnic nationalism. I think there is some of that. That's a fair critique. I also don't think it's the only thing that's happening. I think a lot of what's happening in Hungary is they correctly saw that their unemployment rate had skyrocketed for no reason relative to their peers. They wanted to do something about it. They correctly felt that work incentives were part of the story. They tried to deal with those work incentives, but they still wanted to kind of keep some family supports, so they rebranded it in a way that was politically palatable at the time. Now, since then, they've continued to experiment, and they're always getting further and further away from their initial, like, super game, like, gamification-type model. And recently, they've rolled out basically just a huge cash grant for having kids. And it, it's the first one of their policies that actually seems to be working. And you know why? Because it's just a big cash grant. So when you just give people money, that works. When you try and get fancy with all these weird things, it doesn't work as well. So this policy may actually be working. Poland, Poland is a bit of a different story where they wanted to do pronatalism to deal with falling population. They are opposed to immigration, but actually Poland has quietly been welcoming in a lot of immigrants from farther east in Europe, basically, um, from Ukraine especially. But they wanted to deal with population. They had a far, they had a, a conservative government. And so they wanted to roll out a policy that they thought would be immune from liberal critique. So a child allowance. Who doesn't like a child allowance? It's great. They eliminated child poverty. Like they build it as a child poverty program, even though they like definitely wanted to influence the birth rate. And this program worked. And it created a, a large, if temporary, boom in fertility, much larger than we saw in Hungary. So I would say that Poland's model, for whatever the political constraints, the actual policy approach was clearly aimed at dealing uh, doing kind of a liberal pronatalism. What's a policy that it's anti-poverty, it's, it's not like anti-feminist or something. It's going to make the Eurocrats happy. Now, joke on Poland, they immediately got excoriated for this because it's discouraging women's work. It didn't discourage women's work, but it did give them cash that they could use to choose not to work. So that's that particular strain of feminism I'm talking about. So Poland's was a case where they tried the liberal pronatalism thing and they got treated like they were, you know, keeping women barefoot in the kitchen. So I think this speaks to the problem of pronatalism that any policy offends one side's family sensibilities because there's a culture war wrapped up in here. So what can we learn about the United States? You sort of alluded to this a little bit. There's different ways that we construct 
uh, pronatal incentives. You seem to suggest that maybe kind of the the grants for the minivan maybe don't work, but cash transfer, like straight cash transfers, and maybe linked to children is effective. How do we parse this out in the U.S.? So in the U.S., we have a couple of salient features of our society. We're a very we're very diverse, and we're pretty committed to pluralism. Um, to basically, you don't mess with me, I won't mess with you. It's like the American way is like, I do what I want to do on my land. You do what you do, what you want to do on your land. We don't have to like each other, but we won't mess with each other. Like, this is us. This is how we are as a people. So we're going to have to build policies like that, which means probably one of the things we should be doing is block granting states, basically pronatal bucks that they can use however they want, that you can either use it on daycare or a child allowance or a baby bonus or a minivan loan subsidy, whatever you want to do, that letting states experiment would be a great idea because different states, different things are, and maybe one state is going to want child, you know, universal daycare. Maybe one state's going to want child allowance. Not my problem. So that's one solution. Now you'd have to have some rules on that. Like it has to go for like pronatalism, but uh, you, you could work with that. That's, that's one option. Another option is when you think about policy, you're going to have to think about it as choice consistent. Americans are going to make a lot of different choices. They're not going to agree on what choice is best. You can't make them agree on it. So you're going to need to provide a policy that enables people to make all their different choices. A universal child care program for the U.S. does not fit that bill because a family that's not employed isn't going to benefit from it, right? A family that wants one partner to stay home to watch the kids doesn't benefit from that. A family that wants both partners to work but wants grandma to watch the kids so that they can keep it in the family doesn't benefit from that program. So the best thing in the U.S. is going to be cash. Give people cash. A child allowance is a good way to do it. You could do it as a monthly check. You can do it as an annual prebate. You can do a baby bonus at birth, whatever. Um, But a child allowance, cash, something like that is going to be your most choice consistent tool for the U.S. And because we are a diverse, pluralist country, I think we really should not try to go down kind of the, the interventionist welfare state model of Quebec, which is not so diverse and is committed to Franco nationalism or Sweden or Norway or Denmark or Iceland. Weird how these are all like 95% white countries, right? Like we're not them. We have different family norms. I mean, there are different family norms within the U S we have a lot of diversity. So accommodate that diversity, lean into it and give people the resources to have the family they want. So this is where my liberal pronatalism uh, it, the clever interlocutor here recognizes what I'm doing. I'm saying give people their choice. And I'm saying that knowing that give people their choice tends to favor the choices of more conservative households, right? Because the norm of service provision of give everyone daycare tends to favor, that is explicitly favoring the family and work balance norm of less conservative households. By saying, give everyone a choice, I'm saying, yeah, you can use the money to pay for daycare. But I am consciously carving out space for people who aren't going to adopt uh, modern liberal family norms. The Amish can get their child allowance as far as I'm concerned. And that argument is inherently liberal to the the extent that we believe liberalism is uh, creating a space in which we can make choices in right i would say it's liberal it might not be progressive right exactly yeah um in that i'm arguing that people who aren't interested in progress should still have equal have equal treatment under the law equal access to support for their parenting so it is liberal i I think it might not be progressive 
So it appears once a country hits a particularly critical point, there's no turning back. We think of Singapore, right? That had for many, many years had very aggressive abortion and euthanasia and eugenics regime. They're now at like 1.2 or astoundingly low. I think Korea might be a little bit lower. But the government tried to do all these things to promote fertility, but it had just become a norm to have very few children. Is there a point at which there's just no turning back? And do you see the U.S. getting to that point? So in China, they might be getting to that point where, we, again, we have, pref- we have surveys on preferences and Chinese women don't want two kids. Like, they just don't. So what are you going to do? Singapore is a bit different. Singaporean women still want about 2.5 kids. They don't have a norm of the one-child family as a norm. What they have is high housing prices, or if you're in the subsidized housing, a fixed housing allotment, essentially. And like, do you really want to have kids in this size house? Like the housing situation is really dicey. And then also there's that opportunity cost. I actually, there's a fascinating thing going on in Singapore. You're a really rich country, but you know what you're surrounded by? the world's cheapest and most beautiful vacation places. You talk to people in Singapore and like, they're like, oh yeah, we're always out like enjoying the weekend at, you know, in uh, the, the beaches in the Perhentian Islands or we're up in Thailand or whatever. You see the same thing. I lived in Hong Kong for a while. You see the same thing. The opportunity cost of foregoing consumption in these places is massive because you can get so much good stuff for so cheap because you're surround, you're very high income surrounded by these cheap places. And so I actually think this is a huge opportunity cost story in these places that the yawning geographic inequality around them means that like, why would you pour all your money into this kid when like, look at all this other cool stuff you can do. So this speaks to the importance of a degree of economic equality um, for fertility that when you have really high inequality, Low-income people don't have the money to have kids, and high-income people have the money to have kids, but also there's a lot of cheap labor that they can hire to pay for their experiences that they want to have, and they can get them for cheaper than they would if they had to pay a fair wage to those people. So Singapore and Hong Kong also both have these massive domestic labor uh, workforces that they don't count in their fertility statistics. But if you did, they'd have even lower fertility. So I would say this is in many ways an opportunity cost story. Yes, and I I think we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss global... Oh, sorry, but I didn't answer your question. Is there a point of no return? Oh, that's exactly right. Yes. To some extent, yes. Like when fertility preferences drop low enough, what are you going to do? Like if people only want 1.5 kids, like good luck throwing money at them to get to two. Very few places are at that point. It is possible that at that point we'll we'll find something else. And at that point, the real question you have to ask is, uh, is there some subculture in this society that is going to have more children and want more children? And is there basically their rate of retention in their culture? It's like people not leaving it. Um, Is it high enough to sustain themselves? And if so, then that group presumably will repopulate the earth, right? This is Eric Kaufman's argument in like, shall the righteous inherit the earth? And right now there's not evidence of it because uh, the highly fecund populations like the Amish or Hasidic Jews are mostly small shares of their surrounding populations and their birth rates are already appearing to converge to social norms, albeit slowly, but they are. And they show signs of being, you know, materially sensitive and economically cyclical and all those things. And um, beyond that, they... uh, a lot of these groups, their retention rates fall as their population size grows. Yeah. And there's this interesting political, cultural issue where 
do have two Americas in many ways. In, in, well, and it goes beyond fertility where we have early marriages, higher fertility rates in sort of the flyover states, Trump country, and extremely late marriages and low fertility rates in what we think of as Clinton areas. What kind of political and cultural implications do you think these sort of birth rate patterns have for the future of American democracy? Because you mentioned that, and Jonathan Last makes this argument in his book from maybe 10 years ago, he even says, the faithful will inherit the earth, right? So there actually are these communities across the United States, and maybe they're on the margins, but have relatively early marriages, lots of kids, and what we consider to be the centers of cultural power tend to not have children. Yeah, I'm skeptical of the the righteous will inherit the earth story because, or the faithful will inherit the earth, because um, there are fertility differentials, and they're growing, actually. They're getting bigger. But we're still seeing the fertility rates decline among the religious. They're just declining faster among the less religious. Or same thing, conservative, less conservative, whatever. Like, they are still declining. Which means, yeah, maybe maybe we'll maintain some population share over time, but you're not going to see us, like, swamp the other side because we're not exactly reproducing super quickly either. Now, you can look at something like the Amish, but the Amish run out of land. What are they going to do when they bought up all the land? And you might say, oh, we're not close to that. But actually, the amount of land it takes to support an Amish family is, is not small, especially given the fact that the Amish are highly dependent on federal milk subsidies. The dairy program is basically an Amish support program. You know, the Amish support themselves by selling furniture to the wider economy that is much more productive. A lot of these fertility community, these high fertility communities are not sustainable on their own. They depend on the existence of the modern consumer capitalist liberal society around them. They're, they have a symbiotic relationship. Now, I would argue that more religious communities should think about that as a model, not becoming Amish per se, but understanding that they should free ride on the largesse of consumer capitalist society as a way to subsidize higher fertility because they're going to need it because a tr because retention rates are not as high in diverse modern societies as they are in more monolithic religious societies. So like for example the average the average Christian community in the US needs to have something like 2.7 or 2.8 children per woman to compensate for uh, low retention rates. That is not how many children they actually end up having. So the last set of questions, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss global warming. Again, I mentioned earlier in the conversation that when I talk to my students, I'm surprised with how few have decided to have children. There's all sorts of different reasons. I want to you know, have a job and I want a career. But a big one is this global warming issue that, you know, the more children we have, the worse global warming gets. And, you know, we're at this imminent apocalyptic extinction so is it irresponsible to have kids given global warming? That's a great question. I have like an hour and a half long talk I gave on this at a university in California a couple of years ago that I can provide a link to. Gosh, the short version is yes, it's perfectly responsible to have children uh, in the face of global warming. First of all, yeah, gosh, this is like a whole conversation in its own right. Global warming is a real climate change generally, resource exhaustion, uh, habitat loss. These are all very serious problems, and, I, and they're anthropogenic. They're caused by humans. I accept that. It's a huge problem. I want a carbon tax. 
I keep telling my wife, like, as soon as there's like a viable road tested electric Tesla minivan, like, that's what I want. That's going to be my dad mobile. You know, we need to be doing much more on this front. But here's the problem. We are actually in an ecological crisis. Um, we need a very rapid turnaround in carbon emissions, but also we need to be preserving tons more wildlands around the world. Um, rainforest loss, uh, habitat degradation. Um, we have a lot of natural resources where even if we can extract a lot more of them, doing so will be very expensive or destructive. And so we, we need to be managing those resources better. But these are all problems right now that we should deal with right now. And if I decide not to have a child right now, I still have the same amount of money in my checking account. In fact, I might have more because if you have a child, you might take some time off work and have less money in your checking account, right? So if you have the same amount of money in your checking account or even more by choosing not to have a child, what are you going to do with it? You're going to spend it. And if you spend it, what are you going to spend it on? I don't know, maybe a bottle of wine. Guess what? Wine has massive carbon emissions per dollar spent. You know what object has the highest carbon emissions per dollar you spend on it of anything in your phone? Or sorry, anything. Oh, I gave it away. It's your phone. The electricity that you use on your devices is so cheap per carbon emission, right? Now that depends on what's generating electricity in your area and all that. Diapers are lower carbon emission than airplane tickets. Daycare is lower carbon emission than per dollar spent than a nice restaurant, than a nice dinner out. I would say that if you care about reducing emissions now, knock yourself out, have a kid, just like don't fly to Italy, please. Now, I say that as someone who loves to travel. I'm, you know, chief of sinners here. Um, but like, to the extent that your personal behaviors matter at all, which, spoiler, your personal behaviors don't matter at all. All we need to do is change all the power plants and the cars, and then we're done. But your personal behaviors don't really matter. But to the extent that they do, what you can do is like go vegetarian and don't travel so much. And, you know, th and that's, that's it. Like, that's what you can do. Uh, you know, maybe swap out your light bulbs or something. But like, these are... You just need to change all the power plants. And to change all the power plants, you need it to be economically viable to change all the power plants. And for it to be economically viable to change all the power plants, you need it to be economically viable to make big long-term investments that are going to be profitable. And to make big long-term investments that are going to be profitable, you need growing demand for electricity. And for that, you need a growing population. <laughs> There's all these things I could get into. Suffice to say, the IP, the oh, I never I, I can never get the abbreviation right. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change does not include any population management strategies as viable uh, climate change task. Like they they don't even regard this as a viable strategy. Like let alone politically. Like they just say like this this doesn't do anything. It doesn't work. Not least because the places most likely to reduce their fertility are low carbon countries, right? Poor countries. Finally, what I would say about climate and the environment is why do we care about taking care of the environment? Like what's, what's the point? Well, for most of us, we would basically have two reasons. One is intrinsic value that for some reason we think the environment's intrinsically good. Uh, maybe as a Christian, you think it's God's creation. Maybe you just, or maybe as a, some other religion, you have some other belief, but second is an instrumental good. We want the environment to do well because it'll be bad for future humans if it's bad. Well, those future humans need to exist for that instrumental argument to matter. And frankly, I don't believe there's almost anyone on this earth who only believes the intrinsic argument. We all believe the instrumental argument somewhat. And if you believe that there, if you want to reduce the number of people that exist in the future, you are reducing the number of people who will benefit from an improved environment 
which means you're actually reducing the benefit side of the cost-benefit side for any climate change policy. If you want to impose a carbon tax, you need a lot of people in the future who you can stack up in your benefiting from the clean environment side of the ledger. So overall, I would say the argument connecting climate and the environment is bunk. And also, I have uh, a survey where I ask all these fertility questions. And I also ask, like, are you worried about climate change? Are you worried about overpopulation? Women who are worried about climate change do not have different fertility preferences than other women. And the reason is, for a lot of women, the reason they are worried about the climate is that they want to have kids. Yeah. And that argument is really interesting. One I've been trying to make is there's this deep irony here where there's this intense fear that having too many children will lead to this catastrophic ecological collapse and eventually to human extinction. But ironically, to prevent this cataclysmic reality, we're not having children and inadvertently leading to extinction. So there's this sort of funny kind of irony that it's. I try to pose that to folks who make this argument and with varying levels of success. Well, Lyman, thank you so much for joining me today. This is very, very interesting. And keep up the good work. I'm grateful that we have you working on this issue. I think that you do all sorts of different demographic research. So maybe we can bring you back to talk about something else in the future. Happy to. Awesome. Thanks so much. Beatrice Institute is supported in part by Henny Jewelers. Since 1887, Henny Jewelers has provided the Pittsburgh region and beyond with incredible engagement rings, fine jewelry, and luxury watches. Learn more at hennyjewelers.com. That's H-E-N-N-E jewelers.com. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.